Hi, my name is Tim Thompson. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 131, 1 through 3. Lord, my heart isn't proud. My eyes aren't conceited. I don't get involved with things too great or wonderful for me. No, but I have calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child on its mother. I'm like the weaned child that is with me. Israel, wait for the Lord from now until forever from now. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Rena. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 2 and 7 from the message. Now, getting down to the questions you ask in your letter to me, first, is it a good thing to have a sexual relations? Certainly, but only within a certain context. It's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. Sometimes I wish everyone were single like me, a simpler, simpler life in many ways. But celibacy is not for everyone any more than marriage is. God gives the gift of the single life to some, the gift of the married life to others. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Callan Thompson. Please stand for the gospel reading found in Mark 10, 2 through 9. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed, to, allowed a man to write a certificate of diverse, divorce and se- to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote, the, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The Gospel of our Lord. Amen. Well, we've been going through this series in 1 Corinthians, and uh, here we are at chapter 7. And chapter 7, you know, really chapter markings in the scriptures were added much later, centuries later, thousand years later. And um, if you were to read this letter kind of in a flow, you would see that Paul's kind of going somewhere with his train of thought. And so really, to summarize a bit of last week, last week we talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in chapter 6, Paul basically sketches out something of a theology of the body. He begins to tell us that bodies matter, that it's not just we don't view the human person as spirits and souls that are sort of free-floating, and then bodies that are just kind of this temporary house. Chris, I don't know if you hear the ring on this microphone here, but we got a little bit of something. Thank you. Um, But he's saying, look, the Christian view of humans is that body and spirit and soul belong together in a way that is really indivisible. Um, So that the thing that maybe some of you may have heard growing up, I am a spirit, I have a soul, I live in a body, that that's really, those are sort of of false distinctions. Paul says in Christ the whole thing is together, the whole thing is one, and more than that, all of it is God's. Now I realize that when we talk about things like this and when we begin to say things like this, um, that this can awaken a fair amount of, of pain for some of you. Uh, many of us have not had good experiences in how people have treated us or treated our bodies. 
Bodies can be um, a source of shame, either because of cultural expectations of what a body is, but also because of what has been done to us. And so it's hard to hear a sermon like last week that says, your body was made for glory, that God made your body for glory, and that God made your body for intimacy. It's hard to hear that because some of us only feel shame when we think about bodies. And so then to move on, as we're going to this week and talk about sexuality and marriage and singleness, it can also be a heavy kind of thing because you could feel even more shame or more pain or just say, I I don't want to talk about this. Can't we just talk about loving God and and, and worshiping God? And I, I don't really want to deal with this. And I want to encourage you just sort of pastorally here that that it is impossible for one sermon or even one sermon series to address the particularities of each of your stories and journeys. But I want you to prayerfully invite the Holy Spirit into this as as we're studying this book. Something may be awakened in you, either something good or something bad, and you may realize, you know what, I I need to pay attention to this. And I want to encourage you to pursue. You can email me. I, have, um, uh, I can give great recommendations of counselors in town and things like that because we believe that the journey towards wholeness is not often, in fact, most often is not uh, an overnight instant sort of thing. That it takes prayer and, and relearning. It takes unlearning some lies. It takes internalizing some truth. And there is absolutely zero shame in acknowledging that. Sometimes I think we think that we have this impression that come to Jesus and boom, I've got a new mind and all of a sudden I think correctly about everything and I, have, I, I, I love the body, I love sex, I have the right view of marriage and I can embrace singleness and every, wow, it's just amazing. But it's not really like that. In fact, the fact that Paul is writing this letter to new believers is a, is a, is a sign that he's saying, look, yes, you're coming to faith in Christ, but really you've just begun a journey of being put back together again. And there's no shame in needing help in that. Does that make sense? So let's remove kind of the, the impression that, okay, if I admit that I'm not whole in this area, that, oh, how could, it, how, how could I say that? How could I admit that? Listen, none of us are whole. None of us are whole. But all of us have been blessed in Christ. This is why we say at New Life Downtown, blessed, broken, and given. That even in our brokenness, the Lord has brought his blessedness. And that out of that brokenness can come a givenness, meaning out of that place of vulnerability about our pain, God can use it to begin to share our lives with one another. So I understand this series has opened up a few few sensitive spots. And I want to thank the few of you that have either called or emailed me with some very courageous um, thoughts, because you're helping me. You're helping me know that we are not dealing with abstracts here. We are dealing with the Word becoming flesh. We are dealing with the Spirit of God speaking and working tenderly with each of us right where we are. Amen? So following from last week when we talk about this and saying that the body was made for glory and intimacy, the body is the Lord's, that all of a sudden now we can turn our attention just a little bit more and ask the question about sex. So what is sex for? Because if we were to sort of sketch an answer to this from what we see or what we read or what we hear, we would say sex is for fun, for pleasure, maybe sex is an end in itself. And we hinted at this last week when we said, look, if you believe the premise that the body is yours, 
then your conclusion about sex will be, sex is all about pleasure, so therefore, the question is, how can I get the most pleasure? And sadly, many Christian approaches to talking about sex and marriage is always with this thing of tips and techniques and how to have the most fun and the most pleasure, and it's sort of missing this wider picture that if the body is the Lord's and is for glory and for intimacy, then sex is for more than just pleasure as an end in itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know, you've never heard sex said so much in church. <laughs> and some of you, I understand, some of you might have grown up in churches where it was sort of, we don't talk about this. And sex is just, it's, it's bad, it's don't do it, you know. Parents to children, the only message children heard from parents was, don't do it. Sex, just don't do it. And then all of a sudden, you know, on, on your wedding day, everybody's like, go have great sex. And you're like, ah... I try to warn premarital couples that uh, come in my office. Or we have this other way of saying, well, I just can't sort it out. Is it bad? Is it good? How should I think about this? I want to suggest to you a different adjective. What if you thought about sex in this way, this statement? Sex is powerful. Yes, we can, we can talk about how we believe it's beautiful, we can talk about how we think it's good and God made it, and all that would be good and true and correct. But in this context of this letter, Paul seems to say something very interesting. He says sex is, he seems to be saying sex is powerful. Now the verse here, verse 1, now about what you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sex with a woman. Here's what I want you to pay attention to. Some of you may have older Bibles, I think the NIV still has it this way, where there's no quotation marks around that phrase. It is good for a man not to have sex with a woman. And tragically, for centuries, Christians have believed that this is what Paul taught. I know, you're like, oh my gosh, you mean it's not what Paul taught? No, this is what the Corinthians were saying. So Paul is saying, concerning what you wrote, quote, it's good for a man not to have sex with a woman. In other words, they had developed this rule of thumb for their Christian community. They had said, Paul... In order to be spiritual, we just should avoid sex altogether, right? Don't eat, I mean, none of it, right? Just zero. And Paul's saying, are you nuts? He <laughs> says, no. He says, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. And he says, because of sexual immorality. I love the message translation of it, because we, we heard it in our New Testament reading this morning. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. Picture with me the image of a fire. That's not hard for us here in Colorado Springs because we've had two summers in a row of devastating fires. Now, in the middle of one of those wildfires, whether it was the Black Forest one or the Waldo Canyon one, where tragically hundreds of people lost homes. In the middle of those fires, if I were to stand up and ask you, is fire good or bad? Some of you would say, fire's awful. Fire's so terrible. Fire's destructive. Fire is devastating. Fire took our home away. Fire took our memories away. You would be convinced that fire is bad. But if I were to say to others of you who are about to go, and let's say there's no fire ban this summer, and you go camping, and I say to you, hey, on a cold, cool, Colorado summer evening, and you're hungry, and you've got the tent set up, and you're ready to have a meal, is fire good or bad? Fire's so good. 
Because without fire, we wouldn't, be, we wouldn't have warmth, we wouldn't have light, and we wouldn't have food. <laughs> We're s'mores. Like, fire's good. And then if I got one, a camper and a person who lost their home in the same room said, fire good or bad, debate. It's awful. It's good. It's awful. It's good. You're like, oh, what do we do? And you say, okay, guys, hang on, time out. Let's reframe this. Fire is powerful. But it can be very destructive in the wrong settings. I think this is a better, maybe, picture for us to talk about sex, that when, even as parents, as we're talking to our kids, we're not saying, sex is bad. We're saying, sex is the most powerful thing we have to bond a man and a woman together. And it's so powerful that it needs something stronger than it. What's stronger than it? The covenant of marriage. Some of you have questions about, well, why does the Bible, you know, have this premarital sex? What's, what's, was this sort of just fussy, old, kind of prudish laws? And, and, and uh, were they just making this stuff up from an age that doesn't apply to ours? Actually, when you compare these words against Paul's own day, it doesn't seem to make much sense. No one else was sort of had this view of sex. Paul's saying something that in his own day is quite against the grain by saying, listen, it's not that it's bad. It's not that you shouldn't have sex. It's that it's so strong. And there's really only something stronger than it that can house it. Now, interestingly, if we were to put the fire and the fireplace analogy to work, what works best for you is to have a fireplace first and then light the fire. Not to start the fire and be like, oh my gosh, uh, bricks, <laughs> chimney, ow, that's hot. Yeah. Right? You get it. Commitment and intimacy must parallel each other, but actually that's not the whole story. Commitment must lead the way for intimacy. Because commitment provides the safety for intimacy. So the greatest commitment is the best house for the strongest intimacy. There you have it. Sex is powerful. Now Paul goes on and says two other things that I want to highlight from this text. And I want to, I want to tell you both of them ahead of time, because I don't want half the room to check out. He's going to say something about marriage, and he's going to say something about singleness. And here's what we've not done a good job of in the church, including me. We've not done a good job of showing both as gifts from God. And so what we end up saying is, marriage is awesome, marriage is awesome. When are you going to get married? How come you're not married? Don't you want to remarry? All of this stuff. Instead of realizing that Paul does something here in 1 Corinthians 7 where marriage is seen as a gift and so is singleness. So I'm going to say both of these things, but I don't want the singles to check out when I'm talking about marriage. And I don't want the married people to check out when I'm talking about singles. I want the Spirit of God to give us a new lens to look at both of these things. That both are charismas, gifts, Paul says. Freely bestowed gifts. So the second thing here then is marriage is beautiful. Sex is powerful. Marriage is beautiful. Now, if you're looking for Paul's whole theology on marriage, it's not here. Okay, so this is always the, the curse of preachers is inevitably someone will come up to me and say, well, how come he didn't say this? Like, well, because it was a series on First Corinthians. Yeah, but you know, there's Ephesians and, there's, you know, right, but we're just in chapter 7 today. So, so hang on, okay? This is not an exhaustive, so one sermon will not tell you all you need to know. The Bible's thick. 
But there's a few things here in chapter 7 that Paul says about marriage specifically that I think is worth highlighting. What is it that makes marriage beautiful? At least from chapter 7, there are at least two words that I want to highlight. And the first is the word mutuality. So here is a text that is given, no doubt, fits to a lot of people. Verse 3. The husband should meet his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should do the same for her husband. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body. All kinds of triggers are going off now. And the husband, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Don't refuse to meet each other's needs unless you both agree for a short period of time to devote yourself to prayer. Then come back together again so that Satan might not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I'm saying this to give you permission. It's not a command. This text can be tricky for so many reasons. For people who have had damaging experiences in their story, it's very difficult to give another person the kind of trust that says, you have authority over me? And I understand that. And I understand that it can take time to give a person that sort of trust. But I also know that this verse has been misused for a kind of abuse that happens within marriage. To be frank, we know of stories of marital rape and things like this where people use this verse as a way of imposing their will on another. That is the farthest thing from Paul's mind. In fact, the truly revolutionary thing about this text is the mutuality that Paul is highlighting. See, in the Roman world, sex was a woman's duty and a man's privilege. And so for Paul to flip it and say, actually, dude, you don't have authority over your body either. You can't go looking at those sites with your eyes and taking your body and your drives to that website or that strip joint or that. You can't do that either. She has you. And the mutuality in this text is the thing that would have been explosive in its own day. Because nobody thought of it that way. But the other thing that would have been explosive about this is that Paul was putting two kinds of sex in the same context. In Paul's day, Scott McKnight and other commentators have said this, there was this impression that Marital sex was for procreation, but prostitute temples, all the other stuff out there in the Greek, Greco-Roman world was recreational sex. So in other words, you have your spouse, you have the veneer of respectability, you have sex with your spouse so you can have children, and then when you get bored and you want to have fun, well, that's what all that's for. The temples, the slaves, the, I told you about this with the series on Corinth. Now... Paul is saying something again that is against the grain of his own day. And he's saying, you know, God made this for both things to be together. That within marriage, there is both procreation and recreational sex. Can I say that in church? Yes, yes, yes. That there doesn't need to be the sense of like, well, this is my like obligation thing. And this is, yeah, 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 this is my facade. But really for the rest of my Self, I need to go out here. Paul's saying, can you see that this gift, this sphere is where everything you need is? It's all right here. Secondly, the other word I would say of part of what makes 
marriage beautiful in this text is this word fidelity. Another sensitive word, I am aware. Paul says here in verse 10, I'm passing on the Lord's command to those who are married. So where else in the earlier verses he says, it's not a command, it's just my sort of opinion. Now he says, not just is it a command, but it's the Lord's command. And he says to those who are married, a wife shouldn't leave her husband, but if she does leave him, then she should stay single or be reconciled to her husband. And a man shouldn't divorce his wife. Again, where does Paul lay the heavy line? Who, who does he lay it on, the man or the woman? He lays it on the man. There's so, there's so much of an impression here that Paul was anti-women because we compare Paul to our day. But if you read Paul against his own day, you'll see that he's radically pro-women. That he's in, in, in many ways putting this um, burden back on the men, saying, men, don't you go running off. Don't, don't put them aside. Now, why would Paul say a man shouldn't divorce his wife? Why, why, why would he pick on them? Well, let's think about his day for a little bit. First, the Jewish context. In the Jewish context, there were two rabbis that were uh, the ones that had the authority to interpret the, the law, Shammai and Hillel. And Hillel was the more liberal of the rabbis, and, and his teaching about divorce went something like this. If a woman burns the dinner, you can put her away and divorce her. Some of you are like, crap. <laughs> that would have been over quick. Now, in the, in the, in the Greco-Roman day, there was a contemporary writer of Paul's named Seneca. And Seneca was lamenting that a woman in the first century no longer measured her age by years, but by husbands. And Seneca said, it's a shameful thing that in our day a woman has to measure her age not by years, but by husbands. She's been put away so many times. And in Roman custom, all you had to do was speak out loud this Latin phrase, and a divorce would be done. And Paul's saying, you guys, it's got to mean something more than that. It's got to mean something more than that. You can't put each other away when it isn't going right. It's not an escape. It's not a, I'll take care of you so long as you take care of me contract. There's something more weighty than that. Now I understand that there are times when a divorce happens not by our choosing. And we find something being done to us, putting us in a spot that we didn't choose to be in. And this is, I think, exactly why Paul moves from marriage then to singleness. Because in his day, there would have been a number of reasons for singleness. He would have, there would have been singleness because of divorce. Someone had put them away. It would have been singleness because of death. The spouse had died and they weren't sure what to do. And so the third thing we want to say from this text is singleness is purposeful. But really the two, there's two words I want to associate with this. And the first one is this, the word dignity. The word dignity. Paul makes a move here in chapter 7 that's just, it has no precedent before Paul. And that is the dignifying of the single life on its own. In all cultures, even not just, not just Jewish cultures, but I'm talking about Greco-Roman cultures, everybody kind of valued themselves by their marriage status and by their children. Legacy, 
progeny. This was how you were important. And Paul does something remarkable when he says, I'm telling those who are single and widows that it is good for them to stay single like me. There are very few times where Paul, the great apostle, says, you know what? Be like me specifically. And I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to work against the grain of a world that says, if you're single, you're less than. What, you don't have a spouse? What's wrong with you? Your spouse died? Oh, sorry about that. You've been divorced? Oh, get over there. You don't have children? Wow, what about legacy? To a whole culture that's kept marginalizing people, Paul's working really hard to go against the grain and say, you know what? I'm in this boat with you too. Be like me. There's dignity to singleness. Harawas, Stanley Harawas, the theologian from Duke, talks about how remarkable this is. And then for a number of reasons. One, because all of a sudden Christians can say the individual matters. The person matters. The person matters. Your story matters. Your life matters. The individual matters. But you know what? It's also a statement about the community. Because if you were a woman in the first century that had been divorced and was single at the moment, the only way someone could say, stay single, was if you had a community that was reliable enough that was going to take care of you. And so in other words, what you have to ask yourself, and this is a classic Harawas question, what kind of community makes this kind of life possible? So it's well and good for the church to say, singleness has dignity. But what kind of a community makes that kind of life actually possible? Actually possible that says, actually, we, we value. You're, you're not going to come to church and hear 10,000 people ask you, so are you dating anyone? So how come you're still single? But there's this dignity that says, you know what? That's great. There's something here in your own life that has honor. Now for something really delicate. Last week in chapter 6, Paul says, some of you were practicing homosexual practice or homosexual behavior. And he says, that is what you were. What happened to those people post-Christ when he says, that is what you were? I think as Christians naively, not, not understanding much about how sexuality works, sexual brokenness is like, naively we sort of say, well, come to Jesus and whatever, if you're struggling with same-sex attraction or whatever, like, I'm sure you can be cured. I'm sure that'll go away. But there's a part of me that wonders if Paul follows up the mention of that some of you were living this way follows it up with a whole section on dignifying singleness. Because he's trying to say, some of you no longer have the options you used to have for physical intimacy. But I want to tell you there's dignity in this life of singleness. I wonder if part of the reason the church has nothing to say with someone struggling with same-sex attraction is partly because we applaud the beauty of marriage, but don't know anything about the beauty of singleness. And so to a person struggling with same-sex attractions, they're saying, well, do I not get any of that? Is there any beauty for me? 
in this life? And I think part of what Paul is saying is there is. It's a different kind of dignity. It's a different kind of beauty. But these are two good gifts. See, in many things, Christianity gives you an either or. In many, in many verses, you'll see, serve the Lord and turn away from these things. But in many other things about life, Christianity is the faith that says yes and. So is marriage good? Yes, and so is singleness. Should I love the Lord? Yes, and your neighbor as yourself. That in so many things, Christianity pushes us to a more full and robust life. It says you don't have to celebrate marriage at the expense of singleness. That you can praise both things. And I think this is what Paul's trying to do. Don't say I don't talk about hard stuff at church. Secondly, the second word about singleness that is interesting that Paul seems to highlight is not just the dignity of it. I mean, think of this, just for one more thing about the dignity of it. Paul himself, the greatest apostle, the guy who wrote the majority of the New Testament says, I'm single. (laughs) You can be like me in this. And echoing in the back of someone's mind is probably the remembrance, the, the, the recalling the fact that Guess who else was single on the earth? Jesus. So can we praise the beauty of marriage and the dignity of singleness? Yes. In fact, we should. And then Paul Paul goes on and he says, you know what? There's also something else about singleness. The reason why I said it's purposeful is because it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. And then here's the somewhat humorous, you know, section here of the chapter where he says, I want you to be free from concerns. A man who isn't married is concerned about the Lord's concerns, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the world's concerns, how he can please his wife with the kitchen remodel and new curtains. Oh, sorry, he doesn't say that, does he? Just just, uh, subconsciously. His attention is divided. And a woman who isn't married or who is a virgin is concerned about the Lord's concerns so that she can be dedicated to God in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the world's concerns. How she can please her husband and his constant neediness. Verse 35, I'm saying this for your own advantage. It's not to restrict you, but rather to promote effective and consistent service to the Lord without distraction. (laughs) There's Paul just being real. Like, guys, you have to realize that part of your singleness means There's an opportunity here. And I want to say this to some of you in the room, because many of you are living this way. You're giving your life away. Ministries like Young Life or missions organizations, or you're serving here in the church. The next two Sundays, we're going to help highlight for you ways to serve our city and ways to serve our church. By the nature of seasons of life, those who are married, especially those who are married with kids, will say, yeah, I can't take on anything more. I mean, I can do this, but maybe not that. And I want to to say to you, some of you that are not in that season, that you are in the season of singleness, would you prayerfully ask the Lord and say, God, is there more I can take on? Am I maximizing this opportunity in my, am I, am I making the most of this season? Or have I got life on hold? Am I making the most? Can I, because some of you are here and you're like, man, it's so cool. Everything just sort of shows up here on a Sunday morning. It does not. 
There are people who come early and stay late. They put up signs in the parking lot. They, they haul the, the gear for the stage. And some of you are like, oh, oh that, that's really nice. I sleep in, I grab a coffee and I show up and it's really great. And I go with my friends afterwards, play soccer all afternoon, take a nap. And, you know, look, great, have fun, enjoy life. But you know what? Make the most of this season. Sometimes the message that we hear is, well, I've just got to wait to find myself. And the words of Christ are, lose yourself. Give yourself away. And in losing yourself in service, you end up finding yourself. That, that the call of Christ is sort of the opposite of the, I need to go away and do some like navel-gazing and just sort of figure out like who I am. and like, I, I, Listen, I... I, I like the contemplative tradition. I'm going to lead you through some contemplative stuff as we get into Lent next month. So please hear me. I'm not, I'm not dogging it. But I think there's a way of becoming self-absorbed in the name of being contemplative. And that part of what Paul is saying is, guys, time is short. Okay, it's been 2,000 years of saying that, but still, time is short. And you don't know how long this season in your life is going to last. Some of you are like, I hope not long. Maybe not. But in this season, can you make the most of it? Can you see it as an opportunity and lose yourself in service of God and of others? Now, if we're to kind of step back from the text and say, okay, great, thanks, Glenn, that's very nice, you know, Sex is powerful, marriage is beautiful, singleness is purposeful. Read a poem and send us off to lunch, you know. (laughs) Life feels more difficult than that sometimes. There are many people who are married that say, "I, I don't think it's beautiful at the moment. It's pretty stressful, it's pretty hurtful, it's painful. Others use a singleness. A dignity, opportunity, purposeful, like, you know, honestly, like, I never thought I would be, find myself single. I didn't choose that divorce. I didn't choose for the spouse to die. I, I, I didn't choose to still be single at, at this age. I, I, don't, don't try to make me see a positive spin on this. This, is, this hurts. That's okay to say. Because later on in this chapter, Paul three times says this phrase about wherever you are, stay. Whatever spot you found yourself in when God called you, stay there. And I think what Paul is trying to get us to believe is that wherever you are, God is there. I think what Paul is trying to help us see is that wherever you are, God is there. In the pain with you. Next month, during, we're going we're gonna to finish chapter 8 next week, and then we're going to take the next several weeks and do a series on lament during Lent. And talk about how and why it's okay to give voice to our pain and in our grief, because wherever we are, God is there. Well, I, I'm, I'm in the pain of having a story that has sexual brokenness in it. And God is there with you. And I, I, I'm, I'm in a moment where marriage is, is disastrous. It's, it's awful. 
of an unbelieving spouse. I, I, I'm the only, I come to church alone every week with my children because I'm trying. Paul talks about that in this chapter. He basically says the faith of the believing spouse is so much stronger than the unbelief of the unbelieving spouse. You're part of something bigger here. I think that's this picture Paul's trying to help us to see is wherever you are, wherever the pain is, God is there. One who is greater is here. We are not alone in the world. You are not stuck to figure this out, to heal yourself. I think the other thing we can hear from this is that wherever you are, serve the Lord. Wherever you are, serve the Lord. See, the first one, wherever you are, God is there. The first one has to do with not feeling the need to undo your past. I think some of us, well, I, I, I didn't choose this. We were young when, when we got married. I, I, I just, you don't need to undo your past. Wherever you are, God's still there in it with you. But the second thing, wherever you are, serve the Lord, has to do with not postponing obedience. So, so many of us subconsciously maybe say, you know what? I tell you what, ma'am. Once I get married, my wife and I are going to be the most faithful servants. Like, we are going to, like, serve together. We're going to do all this stuff. Oh, that's great. Are you engaged? No. Well, I'm, but I'm just thinking, that's when I'm really going to give my life in service. No, no but, but, but what about now? What about where you are? Oh, well, you know, when my kids are grown, I mean, now it's kind of tough. And listen, I get that. I got four kids, eight and under. And Holly and I talk about this all the time because there's not this pressure of saying you have to do these things, but there is this desire that says how can we make our life more than, about more than just our life? How can we teach our children that the Pacquiam household is about more than the Pacquiams? How can we teach our children that we are here to be blessed, broken, and given? And maybe it just looks like this. We went and served in this tiny place you know, once a year. It's great. It's great. Something. It's supporting the Swazi team. It's sponsoring a child. It's serving with the rescue mission. This year, all of our meal groups will have a serve component to them. All of the meal group leaders received a card in the mail that shows them the five organizations in the city that we partner with and the, and the dates this spring that we can go and do something. I want to encourage you, some of those on the list are family-friendly on purpose. So that you can say, well, I can't do much, but I'm in a meal group. Maybe we'll take our kids to that day of serving. And we'll fold clothes that have been donated to the rescue mission. Doesn't seem like much, does it? No, but it teaches your children and your household that we are about more than ourselves. Wherever you are, serve the Lord. There's an invitation this morning to hear the words of Jesus to us. To hear the words of Jesus saying, I didn't come and call you with a megaphone from heaven. Jesus didn't lean over the balcony of heaven and say, Hey you, follow me! I don't really know what it's like to be you, but just go ahead and obey. That God became flesh. That Jesus walked in our world felt the thrill of 
loving relationships, felt the pain of rejection in those relationships. Probably not many of you would say you had 12 really close friends and one tried to kill you. <laughs> you know, odds are, it's not your story. Jesus lived through all this, why? As a charade, because the cross was the main... No, listen, Jesus lived all of this so that he could rescue and redeem every part of your life. Every part of your life. See, sometimes we run, we just want to jump to the cross. So let's just talk about the cross because he died so I could, my sins could be washed away and I could fly away to heaven. No, 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 Jesus. What was the 30 years of his life before, before ministry? It was a way to redeem and dignify every detail of our life. You mean my work? Yep, Jesus likely worked as a carpenter with his hands. Or maybe he was... Anyway, you, you, can, you can fill this out, but there's these 30 years of his life that are, that are lived to say to you that every detail of your life matters to God. Your singleness, your work, your married life, your relationships, the hurts, the pain, the hunger, the desire, all of it matters to God. And Jesus entered it to redeem it. And so when Jesus says, come, follow me, he's, it's not the voice of a demanding dictator that says, I don't care about your story, just obey me. But it's the voice of a tender Savior saying, I can show you how you're working, playing, eating, sleeping, married, single life can be beautiful. I can show you how it matters. Now come, follow me. Let's pray.